So he just covered. It was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from New Zealand. This is our first podcast for 2016. Yeah, we've um, kept you waiting. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Hanson and I'm here with Matt Brown, Natasha Markham and the man who, like Beyonce, goes by the single moniker of art. <laughs> In this podcast, I talk to the excellent Seattle-based Tom Kundig of Olsen Kundig Architects. Tom was in New Zealand recently as the international member of Home Magazine's Home of the Year jury, and because I'm the editor of Home Magazine, I got to travel around the country with him to visit the homes we shortlisted for the award. Tom is probably best known for the beautiful rustic cabins he's designed in remote locations in the Pacific Northwest. You can see a whole lot of images of his buildings on our Facebook page. Nowadays he designs everything from office buildings in Seoul to low-cost apartment buildings in downtown Seattle. He's won a slew of awards and the team at Olsen Kundig now numbers 150 people, something Tom says he can't even believe. I spoke to him in the car as we drove through the Cadrona Valley just after visiting the last shortlisted home for the Home of the Year Award. So, you've been in New Zealand a week. What are your impressions of it, architecturally speaking? What were your expectations and how has the country met those or been different from what you thought it might be? Oh, um, well, I don't know what my expectations were coming uh, here to New Zealand. Uh, other than reviewing uh, some of the submittals and clearly recognizing that there was some good work being done in uh, New Zealand. Um, as, as you know, I'm somewhat uh, skeptical of, of submittals and uh, anything that isn't the real architecture. So uh, the terrific uh, part of your program, of course, is visiting these places and really experiencing the, some of these homes uh, in as architecture, as three-dimensional uh, living living objects, uh, and it did not disappoint. Uh, the work is uh, terrific at all levels. Uh, some of it very sophisticated, and and some of it, you know, of course, in sort of development with some of the younger younger architects. It's easy to think as we visit a lot of these homes that architecture is winning, and that all of New Zealand is full of these great or almost great places. I imagine you experience similar things in the U.S. Why does architecture not have a greater presence in our house-building culture? I don't know, but I think part of it has to do with fear. Um, we're, uh, for whatever reason, <clears throat> we're somewhat fearful of commissioning things. We don't uh, typically, as a species, I guess, commission art very easily. We have to see the art before we uh, will purchase it. Um, Commissioning a, a piece of architecture is is a if you think about it is is quite a risk. Uh, you're risking emotional, financial, capital uh, with something that you don't know you're going to going what you're going to wind up with uh, in the end. So it is worldwide, international that um, commissioned architecture is actually, and I think probably will remain. Uh, a fairly small, small part of our built environment. You have worked on affordable projects in Seattle, and a lot of your um, single homes are also could also be considered fairly affordable. Um, in many parts of the world, affordable housing is the holy grail now. Do you have any advice from your own experience about how you achieved it on the project you've worked on in Seattle, and how 
cities could achieve more of it? Well, yeah, affordable housing is is uh, worldwide also. Um, there are certainly more people that uh, deserve uh, terrific places to live. And I do believe that buildings that are done by good architects at any level, whether it's uh, expensive or uh, less expensive or affordable, is a better environment than um, uh, one that was not done with an architect. So um, I think uh, I would uh, uh, not only well urge, but also um, support any um, any affordable housing endeavor uh, and use uh, an architectural group to do that work. Uh, and particularly a good architectural group, you know, just because somebody is well known uh, for expensive housing or, or particularly detailed housing, it's not rocket science to look at a building and edit it to its basic um, architectural uh, underpinnings and make a very fine place using modest materials and using modest means uh, in terms of structural complexity. In fact, I have to say that at times, sometimes the simpler, the more edited uh, affordable housing is every bit, if not stronger, than some of the more expensive indulgent houses. Your buildings seem to make a case for durability. They look like they're going to be there for a long time, for many generations, and I wondered how conscious that was on your part? Uh, completely conscious because um, of course um, sustainability, resource sustainability is, is very important to us all um, but a durable house is not only uh, sustainable in the, in the long term because of course its life cycle uh, extends it, is extended with durable materials. It's also a low maintenance material during that life cycle. So if you don't have to uh, continually bring back uh, maintenance crews uh, to maintain a house, you can just imagine um, the savings, this is, uh, the resource sustainability that's, that's implied with, with lowering the maintenance of a building and, of course, extending its life. Uh, and, and, frankly, people don't want to hassle with the uh, maintenance of their program, to have people show up and, and constantly maintain a building, paint a building, uh, recalk a building, whatever might be necessary. It's, uh, you know, these are homes. These are private places. And you would just prefer them to uh, keep them as private as possible. So if you l reduce the number of return trips for maintenance, you're actually um, improving, I think, your um, home life. Speaking of durability, you first became known for the design of a number of beautiful cabins. And you said earlier in the week that nobody was doing cabins at the time. I wonder why, when you look back at those buildings and the, the newer versions that you're building now, why do you think they resonated so strongly with people? Well, that's actually an interesting question. You know, I, I think still people were still doing cabins, but I don't think they were seeing them as, as uh, important um, buildings that could in fact resonate at a maybe uh, a bit a higher level than uh, what, what, what I was seeing at that at that time and and I think there's a there's a revolution going on and people are recognizing that these small homes small cabins small uh, buildings are in fact extremely important and I think the underlying reason for that is 
it's a more humane scale. It is our scale as people. It is shelter scale. It's a scale that allows you to open it up very easily to the environment, whether it's an urban environment, a suburban environment, or a rural environment. It allows you to sort of um, uh, morph the building in a way that I think is personally important. I, I mean, I do, as you know, have a bias that the building unfold out into the landscape and the landscape folds back into the building. A smaller building, it's just easier to do that. And it's less significant in the uh, in the landscape of the place. What lessons did you learn from those cabins that you took into the much larger projects that you often do these days? One of the advantages of doing small projects is that they tend to be... Um, and, and continue to be research and development projects where you can experiment with ideas about uh, uh, life, um, um, you know, uh, you, you, you can deal with the way a building kind of responds to um, a lifestyle. Uh, you can uh, experiment with an idea of how a building might be uh, built, morphed, uh, the material used, how you sort of imagine these buildings operating because they are small buildings. They're, they're almost like little industrial design projects. You can conceive the entire thing relatively quickly and effectively, and then you can begin thinking about the research and development of how you might um, reconsider or um, explore ideas. And you can do them time and time again because, of course, cabins, small homes, um, are relatively quick and the turnover is relatively quick. So you can determine the success or, or, or non-success uh, of the idea with the client. And you've made a conscious effort, haven't you, to continue doing a wide range of buildings. You haven't transitioned into only doing large projects. Why is that? Well, absolutely not. We're, uh, we're probably 50% small buildings and very small buildings and, can, and we will continue that. Uh, and of course, uh, a larger building might come along that we're interested in uh, and the client is interested in engaging us and, and we actively uh, will work on those also um, because of that possibility, those possibilities on larger, more public buildings. But the small buildings are underpinning all that work in the big, in the big larger uh, building, whether it's institutional or whether it's commercial. It is a driver to this, the scale, the fit and finish, uh, the sort of human flow, uh, volumetric relationships that make a big building human, and you learn that uh, in the small buildings. I hope, I hope that may, kind of makes sense. It's something that we're constantly talking about and constantly considering when we look at the smaller buildings and how they relate to the larger buildings. We've talked this week about how buildings, good buildings, emerge out of a kind of ecosystem. ecosystem. You not only need a good architect and a good client, but you also need a regulatory environment that understands good architecture. How, as architects, can you go about helping to create that and also to ensure that you're working with the right people? Well, that's actually a really good question because, of course, as an architect, you're not in a position uh, to pick that regulatory uh, uh bureau or personality that you're, you're dealing with. I think the only way uh, to really um, have a, an, an effective uh, policy, bureaucratic policy, is to have effective people in those positions. It's interesting um, that uh, a lot of my colleagues are not in those positions. If in fact they were in those positions, it would be a terrific dialogue uh, at, at a level that I think would be super effective for uh, better cities, 
better communities, better neighborhoods. Uh, but it doesn't always happen, and it is so personality-driven that um, it, it varies from venue to venue, and there's no consistency between any uh, jurisdiction uh, that we've uh, worked with uh, throughout the world. What do people need to do to be good architectural clients? Uh, to be a good client um, requires uh, obviously clear communications and kind of a clear idea of what you want because a good architect is actually responding to the context of uh, the client. Uh, if the client can articulate what their lifestyle is about and what they find is, is important and sort of a priority list, because we all know houses are at some point um, a series of compromises, but there are priorities that you, um, and, they're, and the, they, they are typically idiosyncratic priorities. So if you can articulate that sort of priority list, if you can articulate it clearly and consistently uh, to an architect, then the next step is to trust that that architect, as a good architect, takes that information, that contextual information, the client information, the cultural information, the landscape information, the uh, technical information, and assembles and begins conceiving a building with an iterative process, because ultimately that's what design is about. It's iterative, uh, you have discussions with your clients, um, but ultimately a good client is a client that uh, is curious, wants to understand what the architect is trying to do, and support and trust that the architect is doing the, uh, the best thing for the client. Your firm is big now, you have 150 staff. How do you ensure that you're as deeply engaged as you want to be in the projects that your firm is creating? It's more difficult uh, the larger you get. Uh, of course, the more work you're working on, which is also a privilege. So you um, have to, you know, you work hard, for one thing. You're, it's not a 40-hour uh, work week by any stretch of the imagination. All of the owners uh, of, the, uh, of the firm, and there's five of us, um, uh, we all put in uh, well, probably 60, 70 hours a week working on projects, traveling, um, communicating, uh, you know, obviously over the web. That's one of the most uh, effective revolutions that we have right now is that we can scribble drawings onto an iPad and ship it back to a team. They can send us drawings and then we can um, modify those drawings because um, the culture in our office is, in fact, everybody works on the project together, including the, the owners, the principals. Uh, we are ultimately the lead, design leads on the projects, so we have to be there for all the, the hard lines, the final hard lines that are presented to the to the client. So it's um, yeah, it's kind it, it's it's kind of crazy. You you at times run out of time, um, the kind of time you might be looking for. But I'm also lucky. I'm working with a staff that uh, has been with me for in some cases 22, 26 years, and we can carry on that conversation very easily. You've talked in your presentations around the country about the importance of bringing your own story to the buildings you do. You also do some teaching. How do you tell students about the best way to find that story and then translate that into their work? That's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, point because I don't teach that often, but occasionally I'm, um, I'm asked to uh, teach a class, and generally it's a class that is uh, practice-based. In other words, they hire a practitioner that maybe has something that uh, has an idea about practice that is important to teach 
uh, the, the students. So my point is uh, with the students is to make it clear that I'm not there as a professor with an agenda that um, is uh, to teach the students to follow my agenda. In a way, I, I, I say, here's something that's going to be uncomfortable for you. I really want you to dig deep and figure out what your agenda is, is and I will help you if I can, um, either uh, you know, with crits or comments or observations to help you find that, um, to, to find that voice. And I make it clear that that voice comes from them. It doesn't come from me and it doesn't come from other academics. It doesn't come from books. It doesn't come from, um, magazines. It comes from, uh, an understanding of what drives you as a person. Now that doesn't mean that ultimately when you're working with a client that that is a hundred percent of the the idea or the drive behind the uh, but behind the project ultimately when you're working with a client or a situation but what's important is in order for you to have a strong voice in a situation with a client is you have to understand what your voice is and where it's coming from so another question Tom um, how did you know when you had found a way to translate your own experience into your architecture, when you found your architectural voice, I suppose is another way of putting it. Mm-hmm. It was uh, actually, and that's something else um, I want to make clear to students, is it didn't happen uh, while, while I was a student. In fact, it happened while, um, after a number of years in the profession, working for other firms, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of banding about in sort of different types of firms, different types of architecture, uh, not having a completely well-rounded, well-shaped uh, voice. And I, and I would say that the first time I walked away from a project that I had some um, uh, lead position as a designer on and felt like finally I found a comfortable voice, I was close to 35 years old. There, it, it takes a while. It's just like practice on in any endeavor, whether it's music, sports, uh, writing, art. It takes many, many years of practice before you really, and, and conscious, uh, consistent practice before you really, I think, ultimately find your voice. But I think that voice, you have to be open to it. You have to understand um, many of your experiences are leading and they're not necessarily architectural experiences I always try to make that point also you could do a lot of different activities uh, that are important to you that lead uh, to your voice in architecture it's not always obvious but um, I think as you get older you you reflect and you think well actually that had uh, on the surface had no relationship to architecture but actually uh, ultimately had significant um, relationship to, to your own personal voice. One of those formative experiences that you had that you've talked about in interviews in many places was your time in the mountains and your experiences in big nature, I suppose. What effect did that have on what you design and how is that expressed in your architecture? Well, again, but the earlier point, it doesn't. You don't have to be a mountain climber. You don't have to be a, you know, uh, or experience big landscapes. Uh, that's that's just a reference point for me and my experiences and and, and my personal history that I think led to uh, my way of 
of uh, my personal way of thinking about what's important to architecture. And I think what I learned growing up in a big landscape and growing up in mountains is that I'm actually a relatively small bit player in that that larger scale uh, landscape and those larger uh, sort of situations. I mean, if you're caught on a mountain in a storm, you actually feel quite vulnerable and, and small. Um, and I think that's important, uh, or for me, that's important with the architecture <clears throat> that I've been trying to do, <clears throat> excuse me, which is to be more contextual, to be more background to the situation. Now, some people might argue they don't see those buildings as contextual or background, but I actually do. I think they're relatively small. They open up to the landscape. Hopefully, if you get to experience them, you come to those landscapes. They have some position on the landscape, but really, after you experience them, you realize that the architecture is about unfolding into that landscape and being subservient to that landscape um, in a way that I think makes that landscape's experience for um, uh, the person experiencing the architecture even better. You say subservient, but they aren't apologetic buildings. They they have a quiet strength of their own. Well, exactly, and I, I think subservient might not even be quite the right word uh, because you're right. Uh, they're intended to have a very kind of strong point, an emphatic point about their their little position on the on the landscape. Sometimes I'll I'll think that that um, reference comes from growing up in a, uh, a sort of a large farming. Uh, landscape uh, because in those landscapes you would see some of the most beautiful buildings for me as a kid were the barns and the the, the grain silos um, out in those big rolling hills and I thought that that uh, relationship between those sort of relatively strong geometric statements in that big landscape were quite beautiful they sort of they sort of reinforced uh, the experience of, of each other some of those early buildings have led to you being described as a regionalist architect. You now design projects all over the world, so I wondered if you felt that description was still accurate. Um, it's an interesting question because uh, it depends on how you uh, define regionalism. Uh, it, and, of course, at, when it was first part of our language, we all would say that regionalism meant your own region, uh, the region you lived in, the region you grew up in, uh, potentially. I'm not sure that is, um, for me anyway, quite the same uh, definition. After years of doing this, I think a regionalist, a regionalist ar architect is an architect that goes to a region, knows how to look, knows how to understand, knows how to see, and respond in a in the uh, spirit of the region, if that makes sense. Great And how do you unlock that? How do you look? Uh, it's just practice. It's years, years of uh, um, experiencing places. And, you know, it, it's also quite interesting that after you work on a number of projects around the world, um, you recognize that um, we have more similarities between each other around the world than dissimilarities. And, and that means that um, you can begin to understand the situation fairly quickly and understand what sort of the drivers are or what drivers to look for. You know, cultural drivers maybe are a little more difficult, but certainly environmental drivers are um, uh, easier uh, to, to look for. I mean, uh, the, the physics of our world, the physics of our planet 
are the same the world over. There's, there's no, um, it's just the way it sort of is affected by the local conditions that um, are always, of course, um, idiosyncratic to the situation or the place. You talk about working hard and about having 35 to 40 projects perhaps on the go at the same time. How do you avoid exhaustion and ensure that you're still inspired to tackle those in the best way you can? Uh, you don't avoid exhaustion because at some point there's a, there's a, you know there's a physical demand to working on a lot of projects with a lot of people and a lot of clients. Certainly an emotional uh, demand because not all projects, of course, uh, are always smooth. Uh, you know, design by its nature is a is a, a somewhat um, difficult process. So if you're working on a lot of projects, you're actually um, emotionally somewhat drained. But uh, the way to mitigate the the emotional drain is just to be excited about everything you're working on. You're pro- you're working with um, just a a terrific. I mean, it's a, it's a um, it's actually uh, um, it, it's actually something that is ultimately really important to just the the your life is is uh, all these experiences, all these uh, places and cultures, and um, you just realize that you're really kind of blessed. Um, to be um, involved in this situation. So you can't help but be excited. Um, If you're a curious person, if you're a person that likes to take risks, if you're a person that likes to engage life in a vigorous sort of way, um, that enthusiasm can uh, um, certainly mitigate uh, the uh, exhaustion that comes with it. So I was talking in the car to American architect Tom Kundig. His latest book, Tom Kundig Works, is published by Princeton Architectural Press and is out now. Interesting in that interview that Tom talks about finding his architectural voice. I'm the only non-architect in the 76 small rooms team, so can I put that to you architects? How important is it to find your architectural voice and how difficult is that process? I'll let you know when I find it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that... For me, what was interesting was um, that he talked about finding his voice at, at 35, and architecture is a slow burn thing. You know, you don't sort of just emerge from architecture school and go, oh, I have all the tools I need. Mm. Um, and I do think it's sort of a distillation of your experiences um, and, and um, projects that you've worked on that you sort of find what resonates with you in the, in the projects or, or things that interest you. How about when you're part of a bigger firm? How do you, what relevance or resonance does your voice have there? When, art, for example, you're at a big firm, um, how do how do you express your voice within that context? I probably, I guess, I'm disagreeing with the term voice, but we all have a practice and we all have a way that a way that we interpret architectural problems. And I, I think I take it that I take it that way. So hmm. we'd all. I think if if the question was framed that way, I reckon we could all really confidently answer it. I can. You know, I can talk about the way those experiences and those things I've done from long before studying architecture to yeah. since starting yep. and practicing influence the way that I will approach a problem and and address it in a way that is in some way unique to me. And someone else would would come at that same problem a different way. That'd probably be. That'd be how I'd kind of frame mm. voice, I guess. Well, I, to me, the other aspect of, of that discussion that I was fascinated um, in was that he seemed to have this very clear vision of that delicate balance between expressing your architectural voice um, and then also balancing um, the needs um, of the client as well. And that's mm. a, it's a really fine line to walk. Um, 
and he seems to be doing that really well. The, the projects, you know, whether they're large or small, um, you know, speak of that sort of singular voice. At the same time, it's a very responsive architecture that, you know, is, you know, the, the buildings are flexible and adaptable, but, but at a broader level, they're also responding to kind of large issues of social context or, you know, cultural context, which is... Yeah, well, I like the way he talked about he talked about affordable housing, and he, he used the wording that you know people deserve terrific places to live. Yes, mm. not that terrific places are commissioned by people who can no. afford terrific places to live. Mm. It's almost like a human right. Yeah, yeah. And I should add that he doesn't see himself as an auteur necessarily, mm. and that he took pains throughout the trip to point out that architecture was a collaborative process, yeah. and mm. there were all these people in his office, and you're also collaborating with clients and city authorities and all yep. that kind of stuff as well, and. One of the other things he said that really struck me, and I can't remember if it's on tape or not, is that you know a successful building is a miracle because it requires <laughs> so many things to work successfully together um, to make good architecture. Just yeah. going back a step there, my dad was trained as an engineer and he always sort of says to me, has anything you've designed been built yet? And I kind of go, well, it's not. There isn't a singular voice necessarily, particularly in the you know, size firm that I'm um, working in. Uh, there's not a single voice who says this is how it shall be. You know, it is a result of a process which involves a huge number of people, most of whom don't work for an architecture firm. Um, and yeah, I'd, working at the scale that Tom does in cabins, I mean, that, that's it's also a vehicle for, I guess, putting those thoughts forward and experimenting a lot um, easily or more easily or more free um, ability to um, explore those architectural ideas. What struck me about his visit to New Zealand was how many people turned up to his lectures, you know, over 500 in Auckland, mm. um, we filled the venue in Wellington, a couple of hundred in Queenstown. There was something so resonant about those cabins that he's created that made me think about the power of a very small building mm. because of the way they get um, those images get sent and shared through social media in particular. So many people seem to know his work. It was quite remarkable, actually. Mm. I think it chimes really well. And we still have an idea of the cabin and the land, and we're not very experienced or used to the idea of that quality living in the city. Mm. Uh, that's why I reckon, mm. because it's so, it resonates with the tradition of the house on the hill, with space around it. And a sense of escape, I think, as well. Mm. Yeah, sure. Mm. He, he said that he thought some of the work was, expe- like, was experimental, said there was some mm. experimental stuff or perhaps From he the used the word firms. that it wasn't as well refined or something can you yes. remember that? and he spoke specifically about younger firms um, still finding their feet some of it's very sophisticated and some of it's still in development with some of the younger architects yeah and he was very empathetic about that but mm. in terms of judging a competition I think he felt that there were some projects that were difficult to elevate from the shortlist to the mm. um, number of finalists that get published in the magazine but he also I think believes that a lot of those firms in you know five or ten years time will be producing impeccable work this mm. sister yeah did you talk about that aspect of experimentation because obviously you're sort of looking at an echelon of really refined work typically I guess mostly by well-practiced architects but, yeah we're but always who in their earlier in their careers have of course been very experimental and some of them continue to be really really experimental it's interesting though judging the home of the year because we don't have any written criteria for what the winner all the finalists should contain. There's no checklist of um, certain aspects of um, architectural practice that they need to um, tick off or mm-hmm. be scored on individually. We simply go on the road with um, knowing that we have a decision ahead of us to choose the best 
six, five or six projects of the year and out of them a single winner. Um, and because we have so much time together, you know, driving from location to location and um, being on planes and in airport waiting lounges and things like that, we really pick things apart. Um, but I guess you could say that we're kind of looking for a balance of that refinement, but also architects who are consciously pushing the boundary and they have a building that's telling a story about possibilities, whether it be for um, the way we occupy a landscape or the way we occupy a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there needs to be a kind of narrative element to a successful project that goes along with the successful architecture, I think. Many, many of the houses in these, sorts of, in these sorts of competitions and visits are often very large and, and his work, he, he's got a really, he's got a very intimate um, way of handling scale. Did you talk about scale in some of those? He also designs very big houses for um, very wealthy people. He doesn't have any um, ethical qualms about that kind of thing because his um, belief is that his job as the architect is to um, design the building that mm-hmm. fits the client mm-hmm. best. Um, and he sees that as the key responsibility. Of course he has you know, a great environmental conscience at the same time. Mm. Um, he believes in you know, using durable materials and making his buildings as sustainable as possible. Um, but it's an interesting ethical slope, I suppose, in architecture yeah. in that sense. Um, when you have people like Zaha Hadid being accused of working with dictators in yeah. certain countries where mm-hmm. her projects are being built. Um, but there's certainly... we. We try never to have a bias against the size of project when we judge the home of the year. It's really on assessing how effectively um, a project meets the client's brief and needs and how um, it resolves those, resolves those needs and desires into an um, architecturally beautiful package. And as Tom said, often designing a big house is often much harder than designing mm. a tiny one. Well, I think there's a necessity to edit down in small places you just can't yep. put too much into them and therefore you know you have to be quite careful about the things that you choose to, to elevate or express it's an automatic editing process yeah, in that sense exactly mm. well, we respond best to constraints don't we Definitely. we you know, as do is to yeah respond to those constraints make the best possible answer out of them perhaps the more constraints the better the building and larger projects often have fewer constraints yeah mm. yeah Nikki Herbs always used to say, if you if you have too wide a range of options, you don't understand the problem well enough. Mm. Actually, that would be one question to both of you. I mean, working in a larger commercial firm, how what's your view of that ability to, to work at the very small scale and the very large? I mean, well, we don't we don't we, we don't do a lot of really really tiny stuff. We do a wee bit. You're involved mm. in a kind of very titchy little project at the moment. I think what's interesting and, and it's nice nice description of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a jewel, right. a little jewel. What is interesting is the way he talks about collaboration across uh, through the office. He doesn't yes. talk about the scale of work, but he talks about the way in which that whatever it is that. Um, one of their, in quotes, designs mm. is all of the collaborators who participate in that. Mm. And he talks about the, the principles being the design leads and all of the different people that collaborate on the way through. So he's clearly a, he's clearly a very good communicator. And what mm. we've always, what I think you've all probably found is m- m- almost all of the most successful architects are, ex- are, the, are the best communicators. Mm. Um, because that skill oh, so often translates into the communication of your design through a large practice. Mm. If you actually want to transmit that through a large group of people, and the large group of people is what's actually needed to deliver large projects, you know. I've always said, be suspicious of architects who use the word I, 
too much. You know, there's a huge number of people involved, and the ability to communicate that clearly so that there's no information loss from person to person, so that the idea stays intact all the way down to the person who draws the line, goes on site, writes the AD. Every, every step in that chain, if there's information lost, you erode the clarity of goes, the design idea. It goes far beyond the architectural firm. I mean, it, it involves the clients, the builders, yeah. everybody involved with that project. You can have the most yeah. you know, perfectly documented project, yeah. but, but unless you have everybody on board and you're bringing them along with you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the best description, right? It's bringing people along. Yeah. Yeah. And it's communicating to people you will never even know are involved. Yeah. So that's all from us, the 76 Small Rooms team, for another podcast. You can see photos of Tom Kundig's work on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 76smallrooms. And the home of the issue is going to be on newsstands on March the 31st. You can also see updates on the announcement on the awards night, which is on March the 30th. So from me, Jeremy Hanson, and from Arch, Tash and Matt, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.